0: Tonight we celebrate the legacy of a main landmark, an institution which brought us together as a community, a family and like-minded individuals sharing a passion. If home is where the heart is, for the last 73 years, Beach Ridge Motor Speedway has been our home. We've celebrated highs, we've stormed off in anger, sometimes on the same night. 73 years of first wins, first crashes, first glances, first dates, first long walks to the parking lot. From 1949's original champion Dick Garrett to 2021 Pro Series title holder Gary Smith and everyone in between, all-time champ Ralph Cusack, the Iron Man from Wyndham Dick Wollstonehue, the Miettas, Babs, Gahans, Johnsons, Fields, Bubars, Berries, Watsons, Libbies, Morses, Drews, names like Billidoo, Rowe, McCabe, Stevens, McClure, Durgan, Randall, Westcott, and countless others etched in history. Riffs, joys, breakups, makeups, heartache, frustration, adulation. This is my they're all part of our experience. And we're still here. Teams are in place. Drivers are ready. But this feels different. This is different. We're here to honor. We're here to remember. Close your eyes and remember your fondest moments spent here. In the end, we will talk more about the journey and not the destination. It's nearly impossible to fathom a life spent without memories made here. Fortunately, we don't have to. They're ours. Forever. We are Beach Ridge Motor Speedway. It's one thing to think or even say that you'll outlive something. But when the reality hits and you see it auctioned off or ultimately dismantled, it hits differently. And I wouldn't say that it hurts, stings, or there's anger, or, you know, I mean, I think a lot of that has passed. But I will tell you one thing if I'm my phone or computer monitor looking back at me looking at these photos, I guarantee you the person looking at those photos, their eyes are a little dazed, the mouth is probably half open, and there's likely some mouth breathing involved. I don't know. It's it's like seeing someone at their final resting place, whether it's a cemetery, uh, open or closed casket. The finality of it, you knew it was coming. Matter of fact, you went to that very destination to see the effect that you're witnessing. Yet it doesn't hit you the way you think it's going to hit you when you're playing it out in your head before it actually happens. Can you relate to that? then maybe this podcast is for you. Welcome to Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin. And this week, we wrap up our look at Beach Ridge, the next chapter. And I wanted to start off the episode with that song, which many of you have already heard. You may not even have been at the track that day, but you've seen it online. The intention of that entire project was to play it on race day for the people who were experiencing that moment as we we soaked it all in one last time and that was going to be it but i didn't want it to be dissected i I didn't want it to be a case where someone felt left out or why did i put this person ahead of this person or is there a reason you said things this way you know how it goes but then i realized that was entirely self-will run riot selfish thinking at its core i was worried what other people thought of Words that were personal from me. And ultimately, that's fear talking. It's never good to run on fear. So how did it end up in the public domain? Fair question. Before I played it at the track, I sent the audio to a few people in my life who uh, will give constructive criticism, will tell me if it's too cheesy or if it's too much of an overstep, And um, one of those was Dan Collins. So Dan brilliantly matched it with video, sequenced the photos to perfection, and made the project much larger than a straight audio piece could. So we'll all be forever in debt to Dan for uh, doing what he did with that. And I don't know how long the song is going to last on the podcast, There may be a cease and desist order the day it starts streaming, and I'll remove it because it isn't my property. It's someone else's, and they're free to do what they want with it. So for now, I feel like we're getting away with it just a little bit. Kind of like we got away with Beechridge for just a little bit. Anybody who thought they were going to outlive Beechridge probably in the back of their mind had the thought that, man, we're still getting away with this. Like this racetrack in southern Maine, we're still going around in circles, all summer long it's nuts and that led me to something that I I don't always I'm not a hundred percenter on this one but I'm always conscious of do everything with the intent that it's the last time you're going to do it because someday you're going to be right acknowledge and move on that's why it's called the next chapter the last word if you will That way, you never feel like you've left anything on the table. And speaking of leaving things on the table that did not happen with any of our guests today, let's get into it. Stage number three of Open Trailer Podcast. Leading things off, we have the milkman himself, David Oliver. And David, where does your Beach Ridge story start? Late
1: 70s, I was born in 73, so around 78 or 79-ish, um... My neighbors were um, the Meserves, Robbie Meserve, Barry Meserve. You know, they were my uh, parents' neighbors still are. Um, and I used to go with them to the races. Um, Robbie was racing uh, late models, and then he raced modifieds a little bit, too. So whenever the modifieds came, when they got rid of the supers, the supers in, so, 79-ish? Yeah, 78, 79,
0: um, yeah.
1: Yeah, right around then. Um, I used to go with them because Robbie was racing, and my neighbor Sean. Um, I'd go with him. We were the same age, you know. we were, again four, five, six years old, whatever we were, and we'd go to watch Robbie. And then that's when my uncle Tom started racing more seriously. Was around seventy-eight, seventy-nine. So it was kind of a two for one for me. I get get to go watch my uncle race and go watch my neighbor race.
0: Hey, speaking so, of speaking of Tom, didn't he run the Coup de Marsh car for a while?
1: He did. The the year when when Ralph Cusack bought the racetrack, so that 80, 80 or 81, I, I'm off on my ear, mm-hmm. um, Ralph drove it, won the championship, retired, bought the racetrack, and then, actually, it's kind of a funny story, the Tom was getting his limited ready, was in the mall show, ready to race, in the mall because he was going to race it because he, you know he was going to yeah. race limited that year and the Kudamarsh car was sitting in the mall and it was one of those deals where Kudamarsh de approached Tom and said hey you want to drive the modified and of course Tom's like yeah because that, that was that, that was then like Richie Childress walking up to you and say hey do you want to drive the three car right you know because at the time that was probably arguably the best well funded everything car on the racetrack because it just was. Um, so, like, in the mall show, they painted Tom Oliver's name on the modified. They took Tom Oliver off the Limited, and they wrote my dad's name on it. So gave David Oliver, then, so, because Tom said, hey, ask my dad, hey, do you want to drive the Limited? So dad drove it for a little bit till eventually, I, I think they sold the Limited is what happened with that. But, yeah. so, yeah, Tom Tom drove the Kudamash car for, it was, I think it was only one year that he drove it, and then he bought his own car and started modified racing.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, was that the first time that your dad had driven, too?
1: No, they all raced. Um, you know, they were high school in the early, very early 70s. I think dad graduated in 70 or 71, 72, somewhere around there. Um, and all my dad, my Uncle Tommy, and my Uncle George all sporadically raced in the very early 70s, not competitively at all by any stretch, and it was still when it was like... B Class, C Class cars, and those things. Hmm. Um, so, so they raced a little bit back then. Again, not, not a lot, but they did. It really wasn't until the uh, you know, very early 80s that Uncle Tom got much more involved and he did his thing. And Dad raced a little bit off and on. Not a lot. Um, Mom wasn't a huge, <laughs> huge race fan. Yeah, moms so, usually so, aren't.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, she wasn't a huge race She's Still not a huge race fan. You know, she, she likes racing at arm's length. You know, like mm. a lot of moms. So, right. you know, um, so d- dad raced a little bit when I was in high school. You know, so very early '90s, dad raced, and I was going into pits and stuff at Beechridge. You know, before I started driving in '93, I think's when I first started yeah. driving. I bought a Wildcat.
0: So, Dave, who are you impressed by when you go into Beechridge as a fan?
1: As a fan, as in like. Um, drivers?
0: Yeah, we're going back to those days when you and your buddy Sean are showing up to the racetrack and, um, you know, you're, you're first introduced to the place. Who jumped out at you? We're watching Robbie Meserve. We get that. Uh, was it something that you watched Robbie and only Robbie because that's the guy you knew? Or was there some other driver or series of drivers that grabbed your attention?
1: Um, no, there was a I mean others. Um, I tend, as a general rule, I'm pretty old-fashioned when it comes to this, but the cars that are a little on the ratty-looking side, but still fast, as a kid, is what I gravitated to. <clears throat> so anytime you'd see a car that was all banged up, yet somehow started at the back and drove to the front, you would just versus the cars that were just gorgeous. I didn't like the pretty cars as much as I did the ratty cars for whatever reason. Mm. But um, any any of the um, being a Scarborough kid, anyone that was from Scarborough automatically was a favorite, so going there, you know, I was a, I was a Mike Johnson guy, because why wouldn't you be a Mike Johnson guy? Because he was fast, and going to the front, um, you know, I immediately gravitated to, you know, like, Glenn Cusack when he started racing limiteds. Mm. Again, he was a family friend to my Uncle Tom, so I knew Glenn a little bit. You know, a Kevin Durgan, those guys were, because Kevin was only, like, five minutes from my parents' house, so I could drive by his house and see his car sitting on a trailer, and it was like, oh, cool, the 69 car. That's cool, you know. Yeah. So mostly the Scarborough guys, but, I mean, as time went on, you know, everyone p- picks a favorite, but I leaned on, you know, the Mike Johnson, the Kevin Durgans, yeah. those, those those guys.
0: So you, you get know? you get your first race car, and anybody who's seen your first race car, whether it was in person back in the day or has seen it surface on Facebook, uh, saying that you gravitated towards cars that didn't look great but were fast, uh, you certainly you certainly did that with your own stuff early on.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it weren't much. Uh, my my very first race car, actually, well, uh, my very first Wildcat. I bought that off Dennis Hall, um, and that was a car that was run in the very last 300 lap enduro that Beechridge had. Wow! And. Yeah, yeah, and he sat out behind his house, and I bought it off him for three hundred dollars, and it I, it was I mean it was literally an enduro car, and I bought it and converted it to a Wildcat, which didn't back then didn't take a lot, you know. It was the the Wildcat division back then was was, was some stock. You, they were they were supposed to be street cars with like a roll cage in them. That's what they were. Um and that's what it was. So it had a 300 laps worth of enduro racing worth of body damage on it, and I bought it. Um, actually, it, it, they, it didn't have door bars in it. It just had an X for, on the driver's side, and that was the year, I think, that they mandated it actually had to have real door bars in it for safety. Right. So I, I bought the car for, you know, $300, brought it to Mark Reserve, which I, I don't know if you knew Mark Reserve. Yeah, I knew of him. Yeah, a wicked nice guy, amazing welder, one of the best welders on the planet. Dropped it off at his house, which was ironically about five minutes from my parents' house, and had him put door bars in it, so the car was illegal, and I went to the racetrack with it. But it was an Enduro car, and it honestly went pretty good. Uh, I didn't know nothing, but um, my dad helped me out a little bit, not a lot, but it was actually pretty quick. I mean, it wasn't... Back then, Wildcats, honestly, you didn't need to have the fastest car. It... Attrition was was key back right. then, you know.
0: Hey, why did uh, you choose the zero?
1: Um, multiple reasons, honestly. Um, y- you're an only child. You'll you'll appreciate this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Beautiful. Fairly,
1: I'm I'm fairly self centered. You know, the world revolves around Dave, dude. You know? I, there are so many
0: times on Facebook that I want to call you out for being an only child, but I'm like, there are two people that will get that joke, and Dave's one <laughs> of them.
1: Oh yes, no, I am a. I am the absolute, you know, the, the, when you look up the dictionary definition, there's my face of, of only child. And um, multiple reasons. Dick McCabe was one of my heroes growing up, so zero was an easy thing. And yet, when you'd look at the old Victory Lane magazines, they it list the drivers in the roster, and they always listed it by a number one, two, three, four, five. And I liked, if I picked number zero, I'd be the first driver listed on the roster.
0: Dude, my initials are AA. I feel you.
1: <laughs> See? You I'm, I'm
0: right up the top.
1: And as soon as I said this, I'm like, I am talking to the guy that is going to understand exactly where I'm
0: coming yep. from. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm first. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not so great, but you're there anyway. Uh, but, yeah. you know, you, you do well. You progress through the ranks. You, um, you end up in the Super Sportsman Series, and then you graduate to the Pro Series in 2002. Why did you make the jump at that point?
1: Um, I, I didn't have any plan to do that. Honestly, I went to um, White Mountain. It was an open comp race. It was a lot of open comp races at the end of the season back then for the for all the divisions, honestly. And I brought my limited up to White Mountain for a 75-lap open comp race and finished um, second in the race. I ironically, I got disqualified, but <laughs> mm. when I finished second in the race. Um,
0: How is it ironic?
1: The only, race, <laughs> the only race I've ever been disqualified. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and a guy approached me and said, "Hey, how much you want for this car?" I said, "Well, it's not for sale because I'm racing it next year. I'm going to put a body on it. And, hmm. You know, the car was brand new that year. It was, I just just built Alan built uh, Alan Barry built it for him. It was a beautiful car, and was going to race it. And he approached me and said, "Hey, what do you want for it?" Like, um, it's not for sale. Well, throw up a number, and I said, um, twelve thousand dollars because I knew. Um, Dickie Dearborn, Richie Dearborn's dad, had a late model pro stock for sale for $12,000. So I said, 12. I didn't think it was worth that, but 12 grand. He said, I'll pick it up tomorrow. And he gave me 500 bucks or something like that to hold it. I wow. said, if you don't show up tomorrow, there's $500 going in my pocket. And you're not getting it back. And he showed up the next day with the rest of the money and bought it. So that was on a Monday. And on Tuesday, I drove to Dickie Dearborn's house and handed
0: him $12,000 and put a late model on my draw Was that the one that Richie had been driving?
1: Yeah, yeah, Richie. They, they had a couple cars at that point, and I think they were downsizing a little bit, or I don't know, they, they had two or three cars going, I think, at one yeah. point. And, um, so either way, it was a older Alan Berry car, but that's who I was doing business with. You know, Alan built all my limiteds, and I was friends with all those guys, so I bought an Alan Berry car, and I knew Alan would be able to, Maintain it, you know. Help, you know, when it get all banged up and stuff. So,
0: how did you meet Alan?
1: Racing. That was a, a racing deal. Um, my uncle Tom had been doing business with him for quite a few years before that. So, Alan put the roll cage in the very last Wildcat that I had was well, the, the only new one I ever had. Alan put the cage in. Um, per usual, you know, you you do business with the guys that. You know, again, Uncle Tom was seriously racing at that point, and that's who I was doing business with. Tom said, oh, you know, you, you should have Alan do it. He's he's the guy. So I brought my car, and so that's how that worked. You know, it's the same reason mm. I got hooked up with, like, Russ Nutting. Russ Nutting was doing all Uncle Tom's rear-end work. So when I asked Tom, hey, the rear-end needs to be rebuilt. Who should I bring it to? Russ Nutting. Okay, that's where I went.
0: Mm. So. So you know. 2002, you're, um, you're running for Rookie of the Year, and not only do you get that, but we come down to the last race of the year, and it was a pretty dramatic race. I know this is about the history of Beatridge and what you take from it, but I think one of the more dramatic races in the last quarter century of Beatridge was that final pro-stock, pro-series race in 2022 where you do end up winning the championship but it wasn't known until about the last lap.
1: Yeah, I think they were doing the points because it was some close. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it came down to one, maybe two. You know, it's kind of funny, though. You you say that one, and I agree, and that's on point. You know, that's one of those deals, and I won the championship by one or two points, however that landed. And yet I've lost two championships, the exact same way on the very last lap.
0: Yes, I and remember it, that. And people usually, people don't usually
1: remember that, but <laughs> I won that one but coming the... to the checkered flag. I'm driving underneath Bubba Pelton and Jackie Roussel and actually drove through the speed bumps and smashed the crap out of the nose of my car trying to make stuff happen. But um, so yes. I win that one, and yet I've lost two. Absolute, I won a race and uh, not. in The two that I lost... I won the race when I lost it. So I, coming out of the four turn, I think I'm going to win the championship. And someone broke, or someone spun out, or someone crashed into somebody and passed somebody. Whatever the whatever the circumstances happen to be, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, I won one dramatically, and I've lost two dramatically coming to the line uh, on the very shows. It goes to show you the the yeah, competition that we've had at Beatridge over the years. You know, when, because it's not like I'm the only one. There's been a lot of us that have literally come down right to the wire. Last Mm -hmm. couple laps is when it's probably a little bit more rare that you're, like, coming out of the four-turn and you find out if you're going to be the champion or not. But uh, it's it's just been tight racing over the years. And the point just the point structure alone makes it that way. You know, there's not a big point spread. There's not a huge difference in, in, in you know it's like two points per position, heat points at one, so next thing you know, heat points come into play and it, it really, yeah,
0: it really it's, affects it, the the outcome. It's simple math, but it's um, you know, it does make for great drama. Consistently yeah. you are a front runner and you know, when you win races, you've won a ton over the years. Having to start at the back of the pack every single week, did you ever purposely take a second so you wouldn't have to do that?
1: I was not capable of doing that. Um, I wish, it, well, I don't, I'm not going to say that I wish I would have done that because, no. Um, I I am 99% sure if I could have won the race and I chose second, my Uncle Tom, I was keeping my car at our, our shop in Scarborough, a place of business, and I am 99.99% sure if I told him on Monday morning, oh, I could have won that race, but... I finished second because I didn't want to start last. He would have told me to take the car out of the garage.
0: <laughs> I know he would have. <laughs> I know that he would have done that exact same thing.
1: Yeah. So, no, in um, that bit me more often than not, you know, because, again, you'd have to start last. And mm-hmm. back then, you didn't, if you were the point leader, you had to start at the back anyways. But if you won, um, but if you, you if you pass cars in a heat race, you you got to start the feature ahead of those guys. mm if you won the feature, you started last and last. Didn't didn't matter if you could have started last in the second heat, won the second heat, and then you started last again in the feature.
0: And those so, who have just come around in the last couple of years and are used to the fields being, you know, 10, 15, 12, uh, we're talking pro series fields that would be into the 20s every single week.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, easy. Yeah, the pro, the, and the limit is worse than that. I mean, the, the first... When I first started racing limiteds, that would have been 97. Yeah, 97 was my rookie year. Um, we still had a creature feature. The semi features, that everyone called But the, the traditionalists, those of us, we still call it the creature feature. Mm-hmm. But we still had one every week. So they were starting 28 in the feature. Then any car after 28 that was lower in points went into this, the semi feature. And now they weren't the semi features of the. The 80s, very early 90s, you know, when there was, you know, literally 100 plus limiteds in the pit area. But there was 45. So the, the semi feature would consist of, you know, 15 ish cars. And then the feature had 28. So you started 28. Well, mm-hmm. a couple of years after that is when the car count went, quote unquote, down to like 34, 38 cars in the pit area. So they made the command decision to not have a semi feature and just put them all in the feature. So there was nights nice that you'd start 34th, you know, and there were only 25 lot features back then. So if you started 34th in one, oh my god. I mean, that was that was insane. I mean, it was just I just remember coming there was at one point, you know, there was some of the the front runners, you know, was, I, I was thankfully at that point was getting to be much more of a front runner, but it was like Steve Barry and Mike Field and Terry Merrill and uh, um, you know Donnie Morris and all, all the guys that started at the back pretty much every week. We all kind of had a, uh, a gentleman's agreement that we would all take the green flag, go the one turn, and all lift way early, and not really race right till you came out of the two turn because sometimes you go from thirtieth to. 15th, if you just let everything the, the you know, the waters would part in front of you and cars would go smashing off the track, and so uh, everyone kind of had a gentleman's agreement and say, hey, let's not really race too hard the first corner or two and let things iron out and go from there mm. uh, it was just, you know, smarter racing and it's not like I figured that out, those guys told me how to do it so that's what I did But All right. uh, different era, you know and then, like you said, now you race with, you know much lower car counts, and the cars are much more all the same speed now is there's not as much iron on the track as it used to be. you know it used to be the first four or five rows of cars were uh sketchy and uh you know the the back half was was usually the more competitive cars and uh you kind of had to work your way around <laughs> work your way around that stuff through traffic
0: right. <laughs> So you mentioned the, um, you know, you mentioned the car counts dwindling and, and the different era of racing that we're we're in today. When you, when you heard that Beech Ridge was, well, we all heard that Beech Ridge was going to close at the end of the 2021 season. I mean, like right then and there, um, was a it a surprise to you, and B, how did you feel?
1: Um. Surprised? Not really surprised. I mean, I I always knew at some point it was going to go. Most people, for whatever reason, don't remember. But when I remember, I I don't remember what year it was whenever Andy and Glenn got the track from their dad. I don't remember what year it
0: was. I think it was 97.
1: yeah, 96, 97, yeah, right around that. Well, we had a meeting in the uh, pit grandstands, and I remember because there was all the rumors about Beechert being sold, just like it's been for the last 20 years, and I remember the meeting where Andy sat there because Ralph owned the track, and Andy stood in front of us and said, well, the track has been sold, and blah, 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 and we're all, like, in shock because, you know, we don't know what's going on, and he said, me and my brother bought it, so things aren't going to change too much. Like, oh, cool, awesome, <laughs> yeah. you know. But in that meeting, I specifically remember Andy saying, I have a 10 year plan, and you know, to do this, do that, you know, bring in the NASCAR sanction, blah blah blah. You know, that's that's when all that stuff started to happen, um, whatever. And you know, he had his little business plan that was gonna work or not work or whatever. But I remember that meeting, so the fact that he went as long as what he did kind of shocked me, um. You know, obviously, Scarborough itself—the the the property value in Scarborough is absolutely out of control, and on top of Scarborough is an exceptionally difficult town to do business in because they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So that side of it didn't shock me per se. You know, obviously, I wish you would have sold it to someone who's going to keep it a racetrack because that would have been the much better choice. But that was not my decision. It was not Dave Oliver's racetrack, so Mm -hmm. I can't make that decision. But. When I heard it, um, huge amounts of disappointment, heartbreak, anger, and uh, none of that's gone away. Um, That hasn't gone away at all. Uh, I grew up there. I still get angry about it when I think about it. I get really mad. I just get mad. So I try not to think about it. I don't drive by it. Uh, I see all the, the auction stuff going on, and I won't spend five cents on anything. I won't do it. I just refuse to. Won't do it.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, yeah. You know, and, yeah, it's. I think we all go through the different stages of grief, and... Um, you know, at the end, we, we have acceptance, and I think that's what this little detour of the podcast has been the last couple of episodes. It's just, you know, to, to get somewhere, to get to some sort of acceptance so we can move on and, and create the next chapter, a next chapter that you're living with your family and a ton of friends that you wouldn't have met if you had not had the Beatridge Ridge experience. Matter of fact, I don't think your life would be nearly what it became had it been for the racetrack based on who you met.
1: Oh, no, no, I did, I, uh, the racing literally made the person ultimately that I have become and the life that I have had, 95% of that, honestly, is due to racing, just due to friends. I I literally met my wife there. That's what happened, you know? Um I I can literally say, and people like to brag about it, but I can literally say I met when me and my wife met, fireworks were going off. You know, people always like to say that crap. Well, I met my wife, it was, I don't remember if it was actually 4th of July, but it was fireworks night. So July 3rd, 4th, 5th, Mm -hmm. whatever night, Beechers had their fireworks show. That's literally when me and my wife, now wife, started talking. The fireworks show was going on, and we were standing there talking. So I can say if I were going off <laughs> when we met, you know, yeah. so um, that, that's a thing. You know, That's how I, I've met so many, so many good friends. And, you know, it, it, people like to say it's the racing, but it isn't. It, it is the people, you know. Um, it just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just it, the place bred that. Uh, good people always willing to help. Um, you raced against them, and you mumbled they might have done something, and whatever, and you didn't like their driver or their crew guy at some particular points, or whatever. I mean, it's just a bunch of rednecks going around in circles, you know, and we yeah. all fight for the same position, and you get your chosen guy, and sometimes you not, might not be happy with this guy or that guy or girl or whatever, but ultimately it you know,
0: What's it's been coming out, back around? What was your favorite Beatridge race? The one that you've been uh, involved with?
1: Um, I don't. There's been so many that have just been really, really good. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, winning my very first limited sportsman race was huge. Um, again, sitting in the grandstands when I was a kid, limited was always my favorite division. The late models and modifieds got all the glory, and I love modifieds, so I'm, I'm that guy, but the street stock class limited for us at Beechridge was always my favorite division. Mostly knows the most amount of cars and a lot of racks and a lot of regular guys. And again, ratty looking cars. And I love that. So when I won my first limited race, it was amazing for me. Um, and when I won, it was really good because Steve, I had actually bought Steve Berry's old car. My first limited was Steve's old car. And he was at that point driving, the 12, the white number 12 car that he won, like, seven, eight, show. Sure. I mean, he was just unstoppable in that thing. Um, so I won, and he either finished second or third, so I, I held him off for, I mean, I wasn't going to hold him off for long, but I managed to hold him off for a few laps, and I win. So that was wicked cool. Um, the 100 lapper that I won with, that Bradley, Babb, and I kind of wrecked each other for 99 laps was... <laughs> It was entertaining. Um, it was fine. It was very memorable because that is the first race and only race that when I pulled into victory lane right on the front stretch, I stopped. I was climbing out of my car. You know, you're announcing, hey, you know, woo, Dave won, whatever. And there was a Scarborough cop standing at the front of my car when I got out of the car and asked me if everything was going to be okay. Oh, man. And I'm like, I just won. I'm happy as hell. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a... That was, uh, that was entertaining. You know, uh, good good to tell a story. You know, Bradley came right over after. You know, we, we again, we didn't treat each other all that well in that whole race. Right. Um, did a whole lot of, uh, we swapped a lot of tire marks. And, uh, and he came right over and shook my hand. And we both said, on on the racetrack, let's never do that again.
0: Yep. No, and, he's one of the most you know, stand-up people of that generation, I think, Brad is. Yep.
1: Yep. No, uh, damn good little racer. Uh, I, very very talented um and yeah no uh nah, i didn't know how the conversation was gonna go with his mom i was a little bit worried about that
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah now there going, is the bring it full circle though there's a mom who's really involved with racing
1: very uh very passionate about it you know um yeah you know, she uh, no i remember we we're, <laughs> we were on the tech pad after the race i, I again I had already talked to bradley he was fine i saw bobby he kind of Walked by, more or less said the same thing. You guys really shouldn't. He he wasn't bad. You know, I didn't know what to expect with him. Kind of gave me a disgruntled look and said, hey, you guys really should, you know, cut that out. Yeah, yeah, no, that ain't going to happen again. He was fine. (laughs) I saw saw his mom coming. I'm like, oh, here we go. I don't know what this is going to be. She walked up, gave me a really dirty look, came over, gave me a hug, and she said, I'm really unhappy with you, but I'm Okay. (laughs)
0: it's the carla Babb seal of approval i'm okay i survived life is good (laughs) all right dave that's awesome uh i thought we were going to talk for five minutes but we ended up talking for half an hour uh it's been a pleasure it's all gold and um i really appreciate you taking time out of your day for this
1: i really appreciate having me on you know i uh i i love your podcast you do a great job with it i listen to it all the time uh get good people on there the stories you get out of people is amazing so uh, please keep that up because uh, uh, we need that, uh, particularly now, but the, uh, not, not necessarily my generation, but listening to the stories from the older guys, is uh, it's absolute gold hearing the story. So please keep that up.
0: One of the most intense battles of 2021 was in the Beetlebug division, starring Dustin Sally and eventual champion Brandon Lazat. This is called Beach Ridge, The Next Chapter. And Brandon's next chapter has already started.
2: Yeah, we um, we took the trip up to Wisconsin Speedway last weekend. Um, love the facility. Um, the Jordans do a fantastic job of uh, running a racetrack. They're amazing people to race for. Um, and we had a pretty pretty good showing. We finished fourth, and it's uh, definitely a challenge moving to a, a bigger track like that, but uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Was that the first time that you had raced at that facility?
2: Uh, I've raced there in the past, um like their fall Furies you know at at the end of the beach church season mm. uh, but this was only my third or fourth time going up there, so it was it's still kind of new trying to figure the track out and meeting the people and doing the right things. but uh, I went pretty well for the first time
0: you know for um for someone who has been around the track say thirty years, forty years. Uh, some would look at you as, as you know a fairly new person in the grand scheme of the Beechridge story, but you've been around for a while. Not just as a driver, tell me how you got started with your Beechridge story.
2: Yeah, I think my first time at Beach Ridge, I was probably four or five years old. Um, my cousins and uncles used to race there, uh, and still, you know, part time do or did. Mm. uh the the stone family so growing up i'd go watch my cousin dj uh race beetle bugs which is you know what i how i got into it doing what i'm doing now um but i grew up watching him and then once i was old enough to sneak in the pits i started doing that and helping on cars and then finally got the opportunity to drive and develop that into pretty much where we're at right now how did you you get the opportunity
0: how did you get the opportunity to drive
2: um, I you know I was always interested in it, but I you know they made me put the work in first, learning how to actually build them and uh, maintain and how you know get the setups and figure out how they work before they even let me in a seat. And then you know once I did, I, I started okay, and then just slowly started getting a little bit better and better, and then that turned into this year with six wins and a championship. Finally,
0: yeah, I mean you teamed up with I, I would call it the super team of the Beetle Bugs. You started rolling off wins and uh, you know, you know, did get your championship, but talk about the years you came close.
2: Yeah, there was a there was a couple. Um, you know, the last two full seasons that I had ran, I think it was uh, two thousand seventeen and
3: eighteen.
2: Hmm. Um we finished second, you know, back to back and missed it by single digits, you know, point point wise. So it was um Exciting, humbling, frustrating, a whole mix of emotions when you're that close. And, you know, you see your goal after all those weeks. And, you know, but I think it just made it a lot sweeter this year finally being able to do it on my own because this is the first year that I've owned my own car and just did my own thing. So it was... Uh It would have been awesome, obviously, to be a three-time champion this year, but I'm I'm excited that we were able to accomplish what we did this year.
0: Oh, I thought you were uh, with Randy.
2: So I was with Randy um, for those two times that we were close, but this year was the first year I actually bought the car from Randy, me and my parents and some family friends. So they they basically turned the keys over to me and said, do what you can, kid, and good luck. So I I was a one-man band all year this year, really.
0: What is it like being on your own to not have that, that security blanket or, um, you know, the net, if you will, whereas if you fall, yeah. it's it's on you?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pros and cons to it. Um, pros being I don't have to, you know, go and ask permission to do something that's, if, it, if I think it's going to work, I, I just get to do it. Hmm. Uh, cons being is, you know, didn't really get to have a lot of help behind the scenes, you know, in the shop during the week and... Um, I mean, there was, uh, you know, some friends that would come, but nobody that was, you know, fully committed to it. So all the big decisions and the big work was just on me, and um, which was a great learning experience. Um, but I decided, you know, moving forward um, that it was just it was really tough doing it alone. So that's why I teamed up with um, Kurt Dumas Racing for this season.
0: Oh, right um, on.
2: So now we're all together, me, Dustin, Sally, and Butch Keen, all up at Was Cassette.
0: Before I touch on Dustin, because it was quite the epic battle all year long, um, I want to go back to the fact that you were on your own and you didn't have a lot of help and you still achieved the championship. Would you have been able to do what you did this year if you didn't have the experience with the Stone family years ago?
2: No. I mean, I don't think there's any way possible. I mean, they, they've they taught me everything that I've ever learned about these cars or in racing in general so i mean i give almost all the credit to them and i mean randy compared too. you know he put me in a car for a few years and we worked pretty well together and almost clicked off a couple championships there too so it's taken a lot of years of you know working with different people and driving to finally be comfortable and say you know i think i can actually do this Yeah, to see it all come together was was pretty sweet
0: And it did come together on September 11th when you were ready to, I mean, in your moment, claim your very first championship, Um, you know, something years in the making after coming so close for a couple of years. And then the news is delivered that it's not going to be a racetrack anymore. What was going through your mind?
2: I I mean, a lot of other people have said the same things, like just the highest of highs standing up, you know, stage side to immediately, like, the lowest of lows, and, you know, it was standing, you know, with some of my good friends, like Brandon Johnson and Brandon Williams, and we're all, you know, excited to get our first championships and, you know, hanging out, and then, you know, when that all started unfolding, the one thing I remember was just looking looking through the crowd and just at the faces of not even just, you know, other race car drivers, but the families and the friends. I mean, I had my whole family there and, you know, people that have been watching me for years, and... It was just so mixed, you know, like some people didn't even understand what was being said. And some people were, you know, already, you know, tearing up and it was, it was insane. And the, the hardest part was looking at, you know, like the track workers like Dickie and Dan and Sue and knowing that they had no idea what was going on was probably the most shocking part because it was just such a, mm. you know, like nobody could have saw that coming after what i felt like we had a really great year you know overall as a as a track so it was kind of disheartening to see have the mood flip that fast from what should have been like a really fun exciting night for everybody
0: what was the drive home like that night
2: uh it was just me and my now wife and it was uh it was very quiet actually i mean we we had a whole, you know, plan for afterwards. We were going to go back, um, have a little bonfire and some beverages and hang out with everybody and celebrate. And we just went home and went to bed. I, I had no ambition to do anything fun at that point.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that that hits, man. You know, it isn't a small business closing. It's uh, It's the people that we meet along the way and that we interact with and we're affected by. Who would you have not met in your life if it wasn't for the Beach Ridge experience?
2: Man, I don't know if we have enough time to list it all, really. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, some of my my best friends that I speak to almost every day, you know, um, the Alexander family, uh, the Farringtons, uh, Jeff and Julie Walker and Lindsay, and I mean, the list is just endless, really. There's so many people that, I've based my life around basically, you know, it's when you have people that spend the same amount of time as you at certain places and share similar interests, you're going to be drawn to each other, and that's was like a beautiful thing because at a young age I had so many people that I could just call and hang out with or, or go to a race you know, do do the stuff that I liked to do, and it was never an issue we could always just go and hang out and the the race the racing family in general is just totally its own breed. I mean, if you need anything ever, they're the first ones there to to do whatever you know, if you need help with anything and there's almost all genuinely great people to be around.
0: What I thought was interesting about the racing family and um your championship run, which was so back and forth with Dustin Sally, you'd win, he'd win, you get multiple wins, and vice versa. Uh you guys were pretty damn close. Off of the racetrack as well, and you developed a friendship.
2: Yeah, um, which was I would I wouldn't change it for anything. But it was almost surprising, you know, when you're battling that close to somebody, you'd almost think it would start more of a more of a rivalry. But
3: um,
2: I tried. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we we developed uh, an awesome friendship, and um, that that friendship led to uh, you know us becoming teammates, you know, for this year. Uh, which is great, and uh, obviously he's a great guy, great driver. You know, kept we were neck and neck all all season long. So, you know, happy to have him as you know part of you know our team also. But aside from racing, he's uh, he's a really great friend and somebody I like to spend you know time with and do stuff outside of the racetrack also.
0: So moving forward, you mentioned that you already ran at Cassie. You came away with a top five in the very first race. Um, what does it feel like moving forward at a new facility?
2: Uh, well, I mean, you know, they say there's no place like home. So, as much as you know, everybody's trying to find a new place and new path, it's never going to be the same. So, if that's you know something I'm trying to just swallow at first to get over that hump, but um, and it's nothing you know to do with Wisconsin specifically. I mean, I love the track and the staff and everything. It just you know just doesn't feel like where I'm supposed to be. You know, so. The, the plan is, we're, as of right now, we're going to look at running there full-time this season. Um, I won't be running full-time because I do have some other uh, family commitment things going on, weddings and such, so I'm going to be there pretty much every Group 1 week, um, but there will be a few that I miss, and I thought that was okay because after all that work and effort you know, put into the championship last year, it's going to be nice to kind of step back a little bit and, you know, do some of those bigger things that, you know, on a championship run, you you kind of have to miss, you know, if it's on a race day. So right, I'm gonna take the time to just take care of myself and do some stuff with family and still um, you know, do as much racing as I can, but just you know, play it week by week.
0: Next up, we have Steve Perry, who has certainly covered a ton of ground over the course of his time. And it all dates back over fifty years. Fifty years ago, Steve Perry was sitting in the stands at Beechridge.
4: 1971. Wow. Um, you know, we uh, we were involved uh, with um, my mom and, and her husband at the time. Uh, he was involved in working on a C-class car um, with a guy by the name of Larry Chandler, who used to drive the pace car for Beechridge for many years, um, and. He was part of the pit crew. And then they started what has grown into, I guess, the limited sportsman class or wild guy. You'd have to really stop and think. Mm. Um, but they started what they called the D class. And he decided he was going to be a race car driver. And that's what he was going to do. So, you know, 1971, you know, was like the first year as a pit crew. You know, he was on the crew. Um, we started going to the races. And then um, it evolved from there, you know, you know, we always had cars at the house, his cars, um, you know, met up with the Billadoo family, Bob Billidoo, Uh The last couple of years of limited sportsman, I think the first year of his late model uh, sportsman career, uh, which turned into the Pro Series, uh, raced out of our shop up in, up in Buxton, our little house that we lived at. And we've just always been connected in the racing world um, since back in the early 70s.
0: Yeah, and even your driving days, which, you know, those who are of a certain age have never known that you were a driver. You mentioned Bub Bilodeau. Is that the reason why you were number 87?
4: Yes, the exact reason I was number 87. 87, um, yeah, Bub Bilodeau, basically it. You know, um, he was, uh, you know, he was a good guy to be around. He was, a. you know, a good guy to um, learn from and just, uh, yeah, so... You know, much to these kids today that are starting in the go-kart world and they get a chance to pick their numbers, you know, a lot of people want to pick because of their short-track heroes or maybe their NASCAR heroes. I mean, when Alicia started, um, my daughter started racing go-karts, um, I asked her, you know, what number do you want to be? She picked number 12, mm-hmm. and it had nothing to do with anything local. It was because at the time that was Ryan Newman's number, and that was her guy, you know. So that's... I think I think that's probably, a you know, probably 75% of today's racers you know, their numbers come from something in the sport that got them introduced to it.
0: Tell me about the first time that you drove a race car on the track at Beechridge.
4: <laughs> so funny. So it looks so easy sitting in the grandstands. And um, so we built a we built the car. Um, I was more about putting all the money to make it look good than I was to worry about <laughs> how it would perform. You know, I, I, like I said, I thought it was very easy.
0: All and show, man, no go
4: all show, no go. So I go out on the track, and, um, you know, we're going through, and it's uh, this the second-year asphalt, and you're going through the corners, and you're hearing your tires screeching, and uh, nobody's nobody's passing me, nobody nothing, and, but there wasn't a lot of cars out there. Then all of a sudden, I go down the front stretch, and I got a guy that goes to the inside of me, um, David Pinkham. His brother, Phil Pinkham, goes to the outside of me. They go by me so fast. You almost had to look down to see if you were still in gear, you know. Wow! And um, I'm like, wow, this. I guess I'm not as good as I thought. <laughs> Fast forward one week, go to my first race. I draw outside pole um, in the semi-feature. Brad Layton, who's making, uh, he's coming to Beechridge from uh, Lee US, USA Speedway, draws the pole. So obviously they drop the green. He takes off. A few other guys pass me. I'm I'm riding comfortably. Um, in fourth or fifth, thinking I'm doing okay. Um, we're already starting to lap traffic. I come into the one and two turn, and there's a guy that he's got, we call the, the push, where he's got the wheels all turned to the left, and he's going all the way up the hill. He's going to the right. So in my mind, I'm saying to myself, he's going to he's gonna come down the track as soon as those front tires bite. And um, so I better lift and let that happen. Well, you can't lift in the middle of a race <laughs> and when there's people behind you. Yes. Well, when they got done, uh, hit me, and I ended up at the three-turn and literally broke the car in half. It was a you know a Gen 2 Camaro. Um, every dime that I had spent and worked two jobs to build this car was an alpha naught. It was absolutely destroyed.
0: How old were you at this point?
4: Um, 1987, so 21.
0: Wow. 21 years old, spent all your money, and had... I mean, really, a couple of good stories that you have, you know, 35, 40 years later, but you didn't really have anything at the time.
4: No, and, and I raced for probably four years. And when people ask me about it, and, I, and this is how I sum it up, if I ran 110 races over my racing career, there was 15 nights where we walked out of there and felt like we belonged and we accomplished something. So that means 95 nights, I was a backmarker has-been.
0: Yeah, but on those nights that you felt that you accomplished something, what was it? Was it the finish or...?
4: Well, yeah, it was, uh, you know, obviously the finish and, um, you know, um, racing with, uh, you know, with the competitors, um, you know, different competitors. And and I only won one feature in my racing career over there, and it was exciting to win, um, especially when the guy like Kevin Durgan uh, stops by and, and congratulates you after. Um, but more importantly than that, that was back in the days when they had you know 60 to 80 limited sportsmen showing up on a weekly basis, and you had to qualify, and guys were going home. Um, so winning the race was exciting. But even more exciting than that, Andy, was the following week having to start shotgun on the field
3: mm.
4: and coming up the outside with Brad Layton in front of me and Kevin Durgan behind me, and driving all the way up into the top um, top ten before a mechanical uh, something mechanical put me out. I think a rear end or something. But that was that was almost like a bigger highlight than the win because now you were you were with the two top dogs in the division, and you were as a group racing collectively towards the front of the pack. So you know, I, I take that night and I think about it often. Like you know, it, and I say it all the time. A great night at the racetrack doesn't necessarily have to end up on the podium.
0: Steve, what did it feel like to not qualify for a limited sportsman race? What was it like? What was that drive home like?
4: At the time, it it wasn't a big deal because you saw the point leaders. uh, You saw a lot of things happen that um, guys weren't able to qualify, you know, with that many cars. Mm. The toughest part was, you know, when they had the – I, I think it was called the, 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 whether it was the Budweiser Spectacular, the Cause Spectacular, the 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 big race for the year, the seventy-five lap race, that was such an important race to qualify for, and I tried for three years and never qualified. Like it, it'd be like going to the Oxford Two Fifty or a big pass race with a with a big contingent of cars and not qualifying. So it wasn't until my fourth attempt, and really it was your fourth year where the car counts had dropped enough. I think everybody made it in that I was able to participate in that race because the first three years, there was just so many cars, and I never, ever qualified.
0: So you uh, you wrap up your driving career. Why why did you hang up the helmet?
4: Um, honestly, Andy, I was terrible. and um, But I didn't have the support system of, of some of these other guys had. And it's so funny. So... You know, a lot of your older listeners might remember this. So, I, I decided I was going to hang up my helmet and I wanted to try becoming a car owner. Me and Danny Poulin had talked numerous times about uh, building a Super Sportsman for him to come out of retirement. You know, he used to run the modified, and come out of retirement and go back to in racing. So, I bought a Super Sportsman. We did that, and um, back in 1994, and we showed up halfway through the year. Um, Raced a, you know, he raced three or four times. The second night out in the car, he won. Um, but he had forgotten how much work it was to, to compete regularly on a weekly basis. And he's like, you know, I, 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 I know I spent some money. We've got a lot of time invested here. I, I don't want to do it no more. So just so find somebody else. So I actually got in that super sportsman car and had some success in my actual last race of the year um, that year. Me and Terry Martin, who won Rookie of the Year and, and was challenging for a championship the following year, um, we had a photo finish at the end. It was an act tour race. Um, I should have won the race. If I have known how to drive, I would have. Um, and that was it. It was like it really wasn't exciting to me. I liked being involved in the sport, but I didn't need to be the guy turning turning the steering wheel. So it was at that point that I, you know, I hooked up with Donnie Colbert the following year and really took the role to the ownership level of, owning a car. You know, we, we raced with Donnie for a few years with, you know, the late models, and then, you know, it just evolved from there.
0: Steve, that, to me, sounds like when you started giving back to the sport, and if there is someone who has given back more than they have taken in main racing the last 25, 30 years, I can't think of someone who's done it more than you. And a very specific example of that would be the way that you have worked with Lewis Anderson over the years. Lewis was a guy who could not qualify for a race, but with your help and your team, you helped him become a NASCAR champion.
4: Well, thanks, Andy. So, yeah, so I've known Louis for years through through my brother, Brick. We, his name is Mike Ramsey, but we all know him as Brick. Um, and, you know, just hanging around and watching him and, Always felt like that was a true racer. So back in, you know, early 2000s, we were working at the at the gravel pit over there where we had our own race team, and Louis was hanging around and he was helping us. We started investing a little money in him, and um, he, uh, you know, started getting a little better, started, you know, being around people that understood racing versus just showing up. And, um, yeah, and it kind of took off, and obviously... You know, us spending some money and him already spending some money allowed him to uh, become a better racer. You know, he still has his moments, and we all know it, where, you know, sometimes you have to question what decisions he makes on the track. Mm. But um, he's a guy that has given so much to the sport, and I don't think people appreciate him enough for what he's given on the track and off the track. Um, And then that year that he won the championship, how big a deal that was for – not only him, but the family. You know, because let's face it, Sarah, you know, the three girls, Danielle, Amber, and, and Nicole, have have given a lot to the sport. You
0: know? Didn't?
4: And particularly, you know, that track.
0: Didn't Lou good. have an alternator problem one day or a starter issue at the racetrack and said, all right, well, the only way that I'm going to get on the racetrack today is by going to my wife's passenger car and taking the starter out of that and putting it into my race car?
4: Yeah, right across the street. So at the end of the night, on many nights, you would see everybody else fit, you know, out of the pits or having a beverage and, you know, doing whatever. Sarah would be standing there with a flashlight, and Louie would be taking whatever part he had needed off her personal vehicle or his tow vehicle off the race vehicle that he just loaded up. It was either all crashed up or buttoned up or it finished last, more than likely, and putting their vehicles back together so they could get home. You don't see that type of commitment nowadays.
0: That's something that, you know, really uh, rings true of the entire Beech Ridge experience, which over the course of time, you know, you would be involved as a car owner at Beach Ridge. You've gone off and won races with Mike Rowe. Uh, you end up with mainly motorsports. How do you end up on TV?
4: <laughs> I don't know. You, you do these things that... Uh, so back when 2000, I think it was 2005... Um, John Crawford was running mainly motorsports, and he, uh, you know, doing his thing. We had that, um, that accident up at Unity where he was fortunate to, to still be alive. You know, the two cars on mm-hmm. the where he was filming. Um, it, it, the scene looked like the Wizard of Oz when the, the smoke cleared. There was two feet sticking out money at the race car. People ran out, picked it off him, um, you know, got him to the hospital. You know, he was in a coma. He was, he was hurt pretty bad. Well, at the time, he was running mainly motorsports with Marco Thomas, who had the racing paper. So um, they had a couple weeks they showed reruns, but then the advertisers, the people involved, said, hey, we got to get this back on the air. we got to keep going, you know. People want to see the product. So Marco had reached out to me one week and uh, um, had said, hey, I'll, uh, you know, I, I'll do the show. I need you to come up and co-host. Because so I was pretty flexible with the job I had. And then um, he said, all right. So I went up and I co-hosted with him. The next week he called me again. He says, hey, um, can you make it again? I forgot to line up a co-host and yada, yada, yada. And I said, yeah, no, I will. Well, from there, the powers to be at time Warner said, hey, listen, um, can you come every week? You guys are hitting it off. There's a lot of good chemistry. You know, can you guys make this happen? And um, so I did. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, John came back, you know, I kind of still helped out a little bit, but then I lost touch with it. It was about a year later, Doug White purchased with Cassett, was hiring John to go there and run that. And then um, Time Warner actually reached out to me and said, hey, listen, if you have any interest in mainly motorsports, you know, John's looking to move on and be an opportunity for you to, to take over. So, which I did, thought it would be easy. I know a lot of people, everybody wants to advertise, well, obviously, it was at the time when the economy was, you know, headed the other direction. So it was a struggle, and it was a struggle for the whole 10 years plus that I did it. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of money came out of pocket to, to keep it going. And I'll tell you, um, at one point, I was ready to throw the towel in. It was over. I was in so much debt over it. And a guy by the name of Dave Stewart reached out to me, Ryan Stewart's dad, reached out to me and said, hey, listen, if you ever need any help on anything, I'd love to be involved I'm you know I, I you know I'm not an expert I've self-taught myself a lot of things on how to do stuff and I maybe bit an assistant so I went and met with him and we stopped doing the taping at Time Warner started our own studio. he was doing all the editing and you know I owe it uh, such a great debt to him because that show would have been done so much sooner than when it was if uh, if he hadn't gotten involved.
0: Mm. You know, and the show covered racetracks from all around the area, including Beatridge. And to bring it back to that in 2021 and really the last couple of years, um, getting back to giving back, you and Brandon Williams team up for a pretty incredible run. I mean, he knocked off a ton of wins this year, and you get him his first championship. What was 2021 at Beatridge like for you?
4: Well, it was funny because um, Brandon, you know... They dated my daughter. They had, a, you know, a little baby together, and my granddaughter, Charlotte. So, you know, always partial to him. try to help him out, you know, and all that. But Brick was the one that stepped up and gave him the opportunity to race. Um, he was going to run a four-cylinder a couple years ago, and then uh, they took it to Lee one Saturday, and Brick was going to run it, and he ended up destroying it. So, uh, Brandon, before his racing career got to get started, he was already out of a race car. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, Brick? You know, put some deals together like he always tries to do. And uh, he gets a car together and they run the little Thursday Thunder program over there at Beatridge. And, you know, he's racing. Well, then, you know, like most people used to do, they always want to put two, three, four people in their car, run it in every class and try to make as much money as they possibly can, you know, with the top finishers. The same car can run three classes. So Rick gets Steve Benacasa to come over that year. So Brandon turns into an afterthought. He still gets a race every week. And um, but Steve was obviously, if you can think back a few years ago, he was winning every week, putting on an amazing run from the back. So you know Brandon was just kind of a fill in the little JV class. JV class. So at the end of the year, I took ownership of everything. We put everything together for the for run in um, I think it was the 2020 season, and nothing went right. You know yeah. everything was breaking. You know, the motor that we spent money on wasn't running. It was just it was just the whole thing it, was, it brought me back. And the look of the car, Brandon painted the car to be like my car that I had back in 87, my first year, and the same type of luck that I had back then he had. Mm-hmm. Nothing went right. Um, about halfway through the season, you know, I, I talked to a friend of mine, Scott Lamb, uh, him and Garrett agreed to just take it over, take over the operation, help Brandon, work on the car, make sure everything's right, and then um, and make it all happen. And they did. And then they set a goal coming into this year, uh, or the past year, 2021, to, to really have it from the start instead of picking it up midway through the season. And it showed. I mean, he did a great job driving. They did a great job preparing it. We had great people behind it. And, yeah, he he um, absolutely um, crushed it last year. Did a, did a phenomenal job all the way around, on the track, off the track. Uh, a lot of supporters, a lot of respect from the other competitors and, and that's stuff you you can't buy. You earn, um, which brought us to this year. And we were going to go with a street stock, uh, type of thing, but Scott and Garrett are so heavily involved with their past modified. I, I felt like the, on a business decision, the smartest thing to do was to, to, to buy a modified and put Brandon in a modified. So now you get the same type of car being worked on and, you know, driver feedback from both going back and forth. Um, the one valuable lesson I did learn in that whole process, Andy, when you go out and spend a substantial amount of money and you're in a relationship,
0: <laughs> you
4: probably should at least make them aware that you're doing that versus yep. they find out on Facebook.
0: Oh, no, she <laughs> found out on Facebook. <laughs>
4: yeah, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. So I probably, yeah, and then once once you, like, you already know you're, you, you should have, yeah. like, oh, man. You can't fix it, no, yeah, you know, man, so you, you're you're getting you're getting in deeper and deeper and deeper, and I don't know when the right time to to make the call is and uh yeah, yeah so that, that was uh, we're all good. everything's good, but yeah. Uh, yeah I had some explaining to do, and then she did some explaining, and uh she was one hundred percent right in all of her explanations of everything,
0: oh yeah, well, that's that's half the battle right there, just acknowledging that. Uh, so Brandon does pick up the, the championship. It's his first. You know, you're the co-car owner, and you, your brother, Brandon, all together to celebrate that championship. Uh, and then the news is dropped. What was your reaction?
4: <laughs> well, my reaction was probably like everybody standing there. I, I don't – because he wasn't very clear. For a guy that's usually very clear and what he's saying, he wasn't very clear. You know, you had to like, is, are we closed? Is this not happening anymore? What? What? I don't even know. You know, kind of everybody's looking at each other dumbfounded. Cause I think everybody was like, you know, then you start backing up and okay, this is where it was, you know? And then it was like, you know, I, I don't want to say, um, you know, I told you so, but I had many people say to me since that night, you were right because I said years ago he will be the last owner of Beecher's Motor Speedway. Never sell to anybody else. It will close. And
0: what did it do? And we wrap up this podcast with a chat with The Owl. It's funny. He has become someone who's known more for his nickname than his real name, which is Greg Emerson. Uh, Greg, thanks for thanks for checking in. It's funny. I just left you a voicemail, and uh, it was the first time that I'd I'd heard you or anybody refer to you as Greg for years. Because whether you're the owl or you're the night owl creation, by the way, um, you need to change. I don't know if anybody besides me leaves voicemails anymore, but. Um, you should probably change it to Night Owl Creations, because that thing has taken off like wildfire, man.
5: Yeah, it's crazy.
0: So how did how did you even get to the point that you're at today with Night Owl Creations?
5: I uh, just started and basically word of mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who was the first helmet that you did?
5: Uh, Spencer Moore.
0: Cool. Who's... um. Who was the first person that reached out where you're like, because I know you've done a ton of, you know, people that, you know, we grew up, um, you know, fans of. And, and I'm sure, you know, each one of them means a lot to you for various reasons. But who was the first person that stepped up and was like, yo, Owl, I want you to uh, do this helmet. And you were completely, you know, surprised they knew who you were and that they wanted to work with you.
5: Uh Amy Harrop actually had me do Spencer Morris's for her, chasing mm-hmm. the checkered, and then uh, uh, I don't know. It's like it's just been overwhelming. I can't even believe it's been it's been like a couple years now that I've done it, and it yeah. I, it seems like yesterday. The first person that actually came right up to me and said, "Hey, I want you to do my helmet," was Matt Dow. <laughs> Oh, cool. Which was right right after I did the first one for Spencer,
2: so he was the second one.
0: <laughs> yeah, what made you want to do helmets? Uh, basically, I Amy had put a post
5: on Facebook looking for somebody to do some rap stuff on Spencer's helmet, and she reached out to uh, Corey at the Science Store, Warren at ASM, uh, Connor at Elevate, and nobody would really do it now there are a couple other guys and uh around zach white and uh, nick huff that do some helmet stuff you know these are people that are all spread around the state of maine and well connor's in new hampshire but um and i just was like hey i, I don't know if i can do it but i can <laughs> i got a good eye i'll i'll put some stripes on oh, yeah. and stuff see how it comes out and uh connor actually did uh um, Spencer's lettering, so I contacted and I'm friends with all those guys, so I, I contacted Connor and I was like, hey, can you print me some numbers and his names and stuff like that? And then I just went from there. Wow. And, and so, like, like I try to keep it relatively inexpensive so that the average Saturday night, Friday night guy can do it. Because if you go get your helmet painted, you're talking, you know, somewhere in the 1000 to $2,000 range. Eef. And uh, then it's that forever. If we do some wrap stuff on it, we can peel it off and redo it in a year or two years or whatever. So right. um, so I try to keep it fairly inexpensive. And one of the ways that I'm able to do that is I work with all the local guys that do the vinyl, and I have them print, like if it's Andy Austin's race car, I have them, you know, whoever Andy has to do his letter, and I have them print the stuff so that it matches the race car or if the customer doesn't care, then I, you know, use whoever's available. So
0: right on. But what I've always, uh, what I've always appreciated about you is that I mean, much like the helmet thing, it, it makes so much sense that you do it. Is that you know, if you're going to carve out a career in motorsports, whether it's on a national level, regional level, local level, you have to have, um, you know, you have to find your niche and have some longevity. And you've always found a way to. If you're not going to drive the car yourself or be the crew chief, you're going to find a way to be in the game and be, you know, one of the best at it, whether it's spotting, whether it's uh, now the helmet thing. So it makes complete sense that you're doing this. Uh, But a lot of people know you from being the owl, you know, the spotter of Dan McKegg's car. You have been around Beach Ridge, which is generally what this podcast has been focused on um, for for a lifetime. Uh, What were your first memories of going to the racetrack?
4: I
5: have been going there since I was three years old. Uh, In the stands, we sat somewhere between the flag stand and turn one. Uh, My uncle raced, uh, Gordon Nelson, and uh, I went there from the time I was three years old, and I couldn't. It's kind of funny because I couldn't wait to to drive. Like I, my my mother tells stories of me getting in this car, and, and I paid attention at a young age to how they started the race car because it wasn't a key, you know. Mm. And I'm I'm actually out in the yard because it was just kept in the yard at my grandmother's, and I'm just out there sitting in the car playing. And I started it up one day. Luckily, it wasn't in gear. Or yeah, anything, yeah. But, so, uh, but I I did that and couldn't wait till. I was old enough to go in the pit and do something because my, uh, my mother was a real stickler and wouldn't let me forge my age. And uh, so then I did that and that was like, well, this year would have been like 33 or 34 years going in the pits. So uh, then uh, and I always kind of wanted to drive. And then, you know, I, you know, me and a lot of people know me and I'm a fairly big fella. And then as I got older, I realized I'm, uh, I'm like, twice the size of the average driver. And if I hit the wall, it's going to hurt twice as much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have that weight to carry.
5: <laughs> so I just, yeah, I, I smartened up. And I think it was for the best, probably.
0: So you're growing up at Beech Ridge, sitting in the stands. Who are you uh, a fan of?
5: Oh, uh, and Hume. Yeah. I, I love Dick Walsh I love, I, I kind of feel, I kind of feel like the era that I grew up in. Okay, so I was three in like uh, Um, so from 77, and I don't remember like 77, 78, but like you start getting five, six years old, you remember these certain cars and these certain drivers on the track. And you know, I remember walson Hume getting out and, uh, of that Yankee trade in and standing on the door, howling at the moon. You know, uh,
3: <laughs> yes.
5: I mean, he was just—he was a character. He was—he he, he was an enigma. You know, mm. so and you know, some of those guys were. And so, you know, you you see that era, and you see what it got into. And then when you 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 start seeing the mid '80s, and then you see the era that I started going in the pits and stuff. When I started going in the pits and my uncle was still racing at the time, you know, we had to qualify to make the limited sportsman feature. There were nights that we went home without racing because we didn't qualify for the race. So
0: Take me back take me back to that first night that you walked in the pits as a crew member for your uncle.
5: Ah, it was surreal. It was it was like Finally, you know, mm. finally, finally, it, it, we can set the wheels in motion. You know, I couldn't learn enough as any faster than I could. You know what I mean? I, 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 there was, and I'm not that way anymore, but there were times when I was young that I studied, like I read so many books and so, and I mean, I was, I was, a, you know, I was a pretty decent student in school and you know, fairly, I consider myself fairly intelligent. Yeah. But, like, I, like, I focused on how to make us better and tried to do stuff. And I don't know. It. it, That's how I was for a long, long time.
0: Yeah. So uh, how do you meet Dan McKeg?
5: Oh, we actually knew, like, each other through, through high school. He's the same age as my sister. So they're only, like, three years younger than I am and we, we just knew each other. We always knew each other. And then progressing, I worked with my uncle and then I worked with Beaver Norton on his super sportsman stuff and then my cousin, uh, Chris Weber, for a year. And then I can't remember what happened. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was 30-something years ago, but uh, he something happened and I was just like, my cousin stopped racing or something and I had, I had a, like a limbo and Dan came up to me and I remember this, we were standing, I was standing on the bank like right below the, like the judge's tower in the backstretch and he comes up to me and he's like, Hey, can you come down here for a second and look at something for me or something? And I, I don't know. And then we just, I don't know. We just took off from there. was it? he's like, you know, we just started hanging out and, turned it into what it has become, you know, I guess. That was... 21
0: years ago. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it weird how you just remember those moments in time, like just different things that stick out in your brain. You can't remember what happened a week ago. You don't right. know what you had for breakfast two days ago. But you remember Dan coming down to you 21 years ago and saying, hey, come check this out, because it was the beginning of a professional relationship which lasted such a long time. And we talk about different memories that stick out in our minds. There's one that was Dan's breakout moment. It was in the Pro Series, uh, probably 2002 or three, where he makes this big three-wide move to win the big 100 lapper. And I'm pretty sure that you had a big hand in that that moment. Do you remember that?
5: Dan and I, you know, I started hanging around. I think it was, I want to say, like, 99, 2000, somewhere in there. And then, like, I was just hanging around with him. I wasn't, you know, I was hanging around, tinkering. I wasn't, like... Full involved in that time, and then and that's about when you know he approached me and stuff like that. And then in two thousand, we were gonna two thousand one, we were gonna go like full head of steam. And I believe it was two thousand one when he won that race. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, we were gonna go full head of steam, and I had an opportunity come to me uh, through Dale Shaw to go work on his Bush North team. So. I actually went and worked with Dale Shaw in 2001 on his Bush North team. It was, you know, one of those seasons where I would just pop into Beach Ridge whenever I could. But I happened to be there that night that he won that that hundred lapper. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe it was 2001. Uh, but that that uh, and then after that, the next year I was I didn't like the I didn't like the uh, traveling at the time because of my job that i had at the time and stuff like that i was just spending lots lots and lots i was traveling 100 miles twice a week just to go work on dale's cars and and then traveling all weekend and working 50 hours a week and it was Mm. my real job it was just it was too much so i just hunkered back down uh with dan so
0: and and then then you guys you guys eventually get that pro series championship in 2010 uh tell me about that year
5: It was just uh, it was just like any other year for us. Really, we we focused on running good, but we focused on being smart. And you can't work on the car if it's trashed. You can't, you know, you can't get better if you're constantly fixing repairs. You can't get better if you're making people angry the way you're racing them. So, um, we we just head down and and we had a bullet that year and. I mean, they, that, l- listen, Dan McKaig is an incredible race car driver sometimes. <laughs> sometimes he's not, just like everybody else. But more often than not, he knows what he's doing inside a race car. Um, and that that I put a lot on him cause that night. Uh, he, uh, he made it happen. You know, he saw it through the field to gain that. You know extra two spots that he needed right at the end and we apologized to a couple guys afterwards but they understood you know what I mean right So
0: yeah it's a brotherhood so Greg uh, you and Dan of course have that iconic pairing for a number of years but you also have a place in what will go down in Beechridge history as, you know, I mean, they had the, the one week afterwards and everything, but actually, no, wait, it was the final race, yeah. So you have a place in what will go down as the final race of Beechridge, As you have teamed up with Wyatt Alexander and that whole family, how did that come about, and what can you tell me about that race that you won uh, that day?
5: Well, Dan um, decided to, you know, take a step back, and, you know, he's got his kids, and they're, They're going through, you know, the high school sports and stuff like that. And he just, he decided that it wasn't his main focus and that's great. You know, he should do what he wants to do with his children. And, but he also provided them with the opportunity to race the street stocks and stuff. So, so like I still spotted for, uh, for one of them at times and, um, so I, we weren't racing the Pro Stock, and I, I was friends with the Alexanders, and and they asked me to spot for Wyatt, and it just kind of took off from there. And then, you know, we knew that Dan wasn't racing the Pro Stock the last year at Beatridge, so I just concentrated on what I did with them. So mm. uh, And honestly, like, the last two weeks that were Beatridge, um, we won the Street Stock race. Dan Jr. won the, the Wildcat race, his first ever win.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And that was like, to me, that was as emotional as what we did with Wyatt the following week or whatever it was. Because watching little Dan win was like what I felt and this is just what I felt like and like Dan and I hugged on the front stretch afterwards and I was like this is what we worked 22 years for you know what I mean and it was just a it was a moment and you know it's very it's very fond to me you know I uh I don't know how to express it but you know I've known those I've known those two boys since they were born you know there's pictures of me holding them in the hospital. So, uh, it's just craziness, you know, to think of, think of time, but to, to, to win the last race with Wyatt, uh, I don't even, I don't even know how to, I mean, I've, I feel like I've had a lot of, a lot of great memories at Beatridge and to win that last race with Wyatt is right up there. I can't, I can't put a, I can't put an order on on things because they're all equal to me. Uh, you know, winning the championship with Dan. I had a, a past weekend where I spotted Dan in the past sportsman, and we won that, and then I spotted Mike Rowe in the past race, and we won that day. So mm-hmm. I we won two features in one day with two iconic drivers, you know. Uh, uh, then little Dan win in, you know, stuff that I do with, with Beaver and my uncle over the years and, and finishing the, the ride off with Wyatt the way that we did. Um, we had a, I, I don't know. We just, we just hit on it and we were, we were in contention and then Wyatt dug down in his belly and I don't know when he went, he went and I knew and, and, and I have, really good relationship with Wyatt and still, I mean, obviously to this day, but it was, it was a great, it was so, I don't know, emotional knowing that that's, at the time it was potentially the last race, which we now pretty much realize it is, you know, so.
0: Yeah, you go back to the day that Dan Jr. won, nobody knew at that point that it was going to be the last points race because you have the high of the high of, Hugging, you know, Dan and talk about what you had accomplished or worked 22 years to accomplish. And then, um, you know, we get the news uh, about probably about a half an hour to an hour later. Where were you when when that happened? And what were your memories of that moment?
5: I was on my couch at home. Wow. (laughs)
3: Uh,
5: I, uh, for some reason, the day just really felt off to me. I don't know why. I just felt like uh, it dragged on. So, like, everybody went, because there was an autograph session first, right? Yes. Yeah, and then they did the awards. So everybody was going to, and I knew it was going to be, like, an hour and a half or something like that. And um, so I helped uh, Wyatt's granddad, Bob, pick up the stuff, and we got stuff Some stuff loaded up and stuff. And I'm like, hey, uh, I'm going to take off. You guys get the He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like literally, and this, I, you know, I haven't told a lot of people this, but like I left that night and there was nobody in the pits. There was the only people in the pits was uh, um, some of Travis Buzzle's crew, uh, Robbie Emery, and, you know, uh, Travis's dad and stuff. And I know those guys. And, like I got my backpack on my shoulder and I'm walking out of the pits and it's like a ghost town. Like trailers are there, trailers are open, no race cars, no people. And I'm walking out and they're like, you know, hey, what's up? You know, good season, blah, blah, blah. You know, we talked for a few minutes and, you know, I said, I'm, I'm headed home. I ain't gonna wait around for this. And I, so I left and it felt like I was walking out of a cemetery. It was like a ghost town. It was weird. <clears throat> and then I know you don't like the, the flow sports and the Speed 51 and stuff like that. But yeah. I, I, uh, so on Saturday nights after the races would get over, I would, I, I just had a general thing where I would come home and I would watch, I would get home and if I got home in time, I could click on flow and watch features from like Fonda or someplace like that. You know, I'm just that guy. I, I, I can't get enough of it. So, like I'm sitting home watching uh, watching flow, and I just happened to just be scrolling on Facebook, and I'm like, "Are you effing kidding me?" And then I just shut Facebook off because I knew it was going to go bonkers. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really, it didn't sink in for a few days. But then I started getting text messages from people about how it went down and stuff, and I wasn't there. I can't comment on how. That was, I, mm. I I have the same feelings that a lot of people have, and uh, I, I don't I don't I don't even know what to say really.
0: Do you, you regret know? not being there?
5: No, I don't not at all. I I I don't know how I would have acted. Sometimes the sheep is really a lion, <laughs> and I'm sometimes I'm the sheep sometimes, but sometimes when something happens, like. Just hearing the news, and and it's funny that you used the old yellow reference on the podcast a couple ago because that's how I felt. I felt like somebody shot my dog. You know what I mean? And uh, I still feel that way. I I don't, I haven't, I haven't even driven by the place. If I got to go to Warren's, which Warren is four houses down from the pit gate, I come into Rod Road from, from, the other way and i go out that way i haven't even driven by the place wow greg like, um I'm, go ahead bear, i i i would say i'm i'm more on the bitter side than than some but i'm i'm just but i'm a realist also so
0: yeah you know and i think it's because it it hits home. And, um, you know, it involves not only just people that you've been around with, but memories that you've created throughout your life and, and back to the people that uh, you created those memories with, they, they had your back when you were going through a, uh, extremely, you know, personal, uh, battle a couple of years ago when the racing community rallied around you.
5: Yeah, I had, uh, I had a little bit of the cancer and, uh. People just, I mean, it was just, uh, you see the community at that point, you know? So I don't know if I want to delve into that too much, but, I mean, basically that's what it was, and I'm six years out from that. So uh, hopefully it doesn't have a comeback, and we keep chugging.
0: What are you doing for 2022?
5: Well, I know that you know that I'm not – I'm not a sit-around. I'm going to be involved somehow. Um, I had some opportunities in front of me to get into the officiating side at other facilities, and uh, I chose not to take those yet. I think that's probably where I'm going to end up uh, if I don't die before I stop doing what I'm doing. (laughs) But, but but for uh, 2022, I have uh, Dan Junior racing um, is racing the Grand State Tour, and so I'll be spotting for him. Uh, there's a few that I can't do, um, but Dan Collins I think will be doing those. And uh, then I have uh, my other uh, I call him Gason is uh, Garrett Lamb. Uh, so I spot for him in the past mods His his, you know, his father is one of my oldest friends and, you know, I've known carrot since he was born. So, mm. uh, but, so I have those two and I also have picked up um, a mod team out of Massachusetts, uh, a young kid named Sam Ramo. Uh, I worked with him at, ironically the first time at Beatridge uh, they had heard about me and they had reached out to me uh, to spot for them, back I don't know four or five years ago, and so I picked up one race with them at Beatridge, and then I, you know, then they asked me to go to Lee for the next MRS race, and I went to that. Then I went to Thompson with them, and so they reached out to me this year that their spotter wasn't available and uh, asked if I could do some stuff. They sent me their schedule. I, I mean. I, honestly, I don't, the average fan does not realize. I don't think that, like, guys like myself, guys like Dan Collins, who spot for more than one team, like, we have date books and we fill in dates. You know what I mean? And write where we're available and stuff like that. So I, I basically took my, took their schedule, took my date book and, um, checked the X's and crossed the T's and, I gave up one race for Dan Jr. gave up one race for Garrett, and gave up uh, one race for Sam. And I, uh, I'm able to do Sam for almost all of his. So, um, my schedule is 42 races this year.
0: Wow, wow! It's <laughs> it's like it's like figuring out um, the routing for a professional sports team. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's different, you know. Yeah. But uh, uh, the the
5: The thing that I will say, and I don't want people to take it the wrong way, um, with the news of Beatridge, and at some point, you as a person who are involved there have to come to terms with it yourself. Um, So, me, I went through the highest highs, the lowest lows, all that, you know, and then I got to the point where I'm going to keep on keeping on. So... I almost feel like I've been set free. You know what I mean? Like I, I almost feel like I got out of I got out of jail. And I don't want that to sound jerkish, but because I, I want I don't I don't want what's happening to happen. But
0: yeah, you left what you thought was a graveyard,
5: right? And I, I don't want it to, I don't want it to end up. I don't want what's happening to happen I want it to be there I want to be able to do that but
3: mm.
5: in the same aspect and I believe this for other people too and some people may hear this and say, you know you're completely wrong but it it, it affords us new opportunities and if you 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 aren't going to change what's happening because if you know the players in the game, you know how it works. And you're not going to change what's happening. So make the make the damn best of what you got in front of you. Go support these other tracks that are still there. And this is this is what I would say to, to race fans, okay? If you were a lifelong Beatrice person, get in your car, drive three hours to Stafford Motor Speedway on a Friday night, take a vacation night. If your wife enjoys it, great. Go get a hotel room down there, and go support. You know, go watch. Stafford Motor Speedway, in my opinion, is, is probably one of the best short track racing and set weekly that you can go watch on a Friday night anywhere, on any. It is the show. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm kind of biased because I love it there. But,
2: mm-hmm.
5: but, um, but there's tracks all throughout. There's there's Wiscasset, There's Lee this star, this Oxford. This go, go to different tracks. If the border opens up, go to Canada. You know, uh, there's me, and my girlfriend and I try to go to a new track every year. We try to take, like, one of those weeks and, and that we don't have anything going on and go to a new track every year. Now, it might not be a new track to me, but it might be a new track to her. Know. You know? So, me doing the modified thing... I went to a new track this past weekend. It was the first time I'd ever been to Manadnock. So uh, that was cool. I'm so- out of there with two second-place finishes. I
0: want to thank Greg, Steve, Brandon, David, and all of our guests throughout the three-week series of Beach Ridge, the next chapter. Everybody brought heat. And, and thank you for reaching out, whether you're a contributor to Patreon, you become a member of Main Vintage Race Car Association, or you've just sent a private message uh, and said that you really enjoyed the podcast, or you've asked for a sticker. I mean, any support is, I mean, there are a lot of things that try to grab your attention every single day, and, uh, and you likely appreciate many of them. But the fact that you take time out of your day to even just say thank you for uh, doing this, it's greatly appreciated. And it keeps this podcast going Hey, next up I don't exactly have a tease Because it's stupid late I mean, it's not really late if For you, 10pm isn't that late But for me, who gets up at 3am It is Just a little context um, I'm not trying to rush the podcast But it does debut in less than two hours And I have to be up in five So next week Just trust me We have an amazing conversation With Dick Fowler Stage one of two Next Thursday On Open Trailer Podcast Thanks for the support